Amen. Thank you, Mary Alice. That was just beautiful. Thank you so much. How appropriate that in a time of national crisis, world crisis, we can still trust the Lord. Amen. He's still on the throne. And uh, this book of John talks about that. It calls him God made in the flesh. It calls him the Savior, the Redeemer. It calls him the Savior of the world. We know that he is the King of glory and the King of kings, worthy of our praise. Even in the midst of very difficult times, he is worthy. Well, the book of John, written, of course, by the Apostle John when he was in his 90s, maybe mid-90s. And uh, what uh, he wrote about happened 60 years uh, earlier. And, uh, and he's recording for us uh, the activities of Christ and drawing a picture of Christ so we can see who he is and his great power. We come to chapter 4 and verse 43. Remind you that we've got a promise at the end of this book that says if we will let this book do its work, our faith will continue. That is, it'll go forward. It will grow. And we can live the life. That is, the Christian life, the Christ life. And so that is a great promise. In this book, we see the Lord bigger and bigger. If we'll let him, he'll reveal himself and who he is and what he can do for us. Well, uh, we pick up the story that began with a woman at the well who met Jesus and she believed. And then she shared the message with the Samaritan people and they believed. Jesus spent two days with them and many of them believed. And now we come to verse 43. Now after two days, he, that's the Lord Jesus, of course along with his disciples that are following him. Now after two days, he departed thence, or from there, and went into Galilee. Keep your Bibles open, please. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the good singing. Thank you, the Lord Jesus, that you are the King of glory. And nothing catches you by surprise. You're the sovereign one. And you can use even bad things to bring good out of it. We thank you for that. Speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. The story is told of a famous preacher of years gone by who lived and preached in Wales, but also all over Europe. And uh, one time he was preaching in a, in a village... Uh, in a town, a city, and, and in the middle of his sermon, someone got up and started singing the doxology. Well, that was pretty odd, but then he didn't sit back down, he just kept singing it, singing it. So, some other people began to sing along. Before long, the whole congregation was standing singing the doxology. So when it was over and they sat back down, uh, John Hutton continued preaching. After the service, though, he wanted to find that fellow who disrupted his message with the doxology. So he found the man, they introduced themselves, and he asked him about it, and, and he apologized and said he, said he had not been saved very long, and uh, the preacher was talking about being redeemed and about... The blood of Christ washing away all of our sins. And he said, I just couldn't sit still. And uh, I had to praise the Lord for what he had done for me. 
He then told that he had not been saved a very long time. He had been a drunkard. He had beat his wife for many years. His children. That he had sold the furniture to buy liquor. And now that he was redeemed, he was loving his family and rejoicing in God's grace and uh, so glad that the Lord changed his life. Dr. Hutton asked him then if he was having much trouble down at the mines. He was a, he was a tin miner, T-I-N, tin miner. Worked underground. He asked him if how he was getting along with his co-workers at the mine. He said, oh, they give me a hard time all the time, but I don't mind because I'm never alone. The Lord Jesus is always with me. And then he said, just today, they were kidding me and saying, you certainly don't believe that old yarn about Jesus turning water into wine, do you? He said, I told them, I know nothing about water and wine. But I know this, that in my house, Christ turned beer into furniture. And he said, that's a good enough miracle for me. <laughs> Jesus changes lives. He saved that, that woman at the well who had this sinful past. He saved her, redeemed her, forgave her. And then that whole city... And he never worked a miracle. As far as we know, none recorded and no hint of it. He worked no miracles in those two days. He did demonstrate his uh, omnipotence by knowing her life. But uh, uh, no miracle. And yet there was each one of them experienced the miracle of the new birth. You and I who are redeemed, we have that miracle of being regenerated, becoming children of God, being baptized into the body of Christ and therefore joined to Christ himself in Sweet and beautiful fellowship. So, a miracle. We come today to the second miracle recorded by John. Now, it's not the second miracle Jesus did. Remember when he was in, when he was in uh, Galilee, uh, not Galilee, that's where he's going to, but when he was in Judea, uh, he performed miracles down there. But John only records seven miracles. Thirty-five miracles were recorded by, if you put all four of the Gospels together, thirty-five are recorded in detail, but on several occasions we're told he healed many people. Or in a big crowd it says he healed all the people. So there was many, many more. Thirty-five recorded for us, only seven by John. This is the second one by John. And so we come to this first little section that really deals with, again, some uh, geographical movement. So let's look at it. Verse 43 again. Now after the two days he spent in, in uh, Samaria, he departed from there and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now Jesus is not saying this in this particular passage. John is writing this and saying that Jesus has said this, that he testified to this Prophecy, And that's recorded by uh, our other uh, gospel writers. Uh, so, but the thought is here, who's re, who, what's he referring to or who? Is he talking about Judea because that's where he was born? Is he talking about Galilee because that's where he grew up? Uh, what is it, where is it that he's not been accepted? Probably he's referring again to the town of Nazareth. 
Because in order to get to Cana, where he's going, you've got to go around uh, Nazareth, or go through it. And so they either went through it or around it, and because Jesus was not accepted there. Verse 45, uh, Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him. That is, they welcomed him. Uh, and having seen all the things which he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. And so they had gone down. They had made their uh, pilgrimage into Jerusalem. They saw him. Many of them saw him. If they didn't see it happen, they heard about it, that he cleansed the temple and run the, uh, the crooks out of the temple. And then he uh, performed miracles. And so they were aware of this. So now they're, they're open and welcoming Jesus uh, back. And... Uh, having seen the things he did in Jerusalem, for they were there. Verse 46, So Jesus came unto Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. That was the first miracle report recorded by John. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now let's think about the geographical for a moment. I want to talk about traveling for a moment in the, in the uh, Bible times. You, you've heard me say many, many times, a day's journey for walking is 20 miles. Now, it's pretty easy to say that. It's another thing to do it. I mean, if I walk 20 miles in one day, it'd take me two weeks in the hospital to get over it. But these people walk, would walk 20 miles in one day and then turn around and walk 20 miles the next day. That's how they got around. Jesus and his disciples were pretty tough and uh, walking uh, constantly. And uh, so, uh, and, and by the way, the average walk of somebody walking a long distance is 2.5 miles an hour. That means it'd take you eight hours of walking to walk 20 miles. Now, that's just the walking part. If you stop to eat lunch or, or something else, or if you rested every now and then, you might actually, the journey might take more like nine, ten hours. And, uh, and then, of course, you would stop for the night and and eat and, and rest for the night. So that would be a day's journey. Now, a, a day's journey for a donkey would be 20 miles as well. Uh, and the don no, none of the Jews, Jewish men, rode donkeys. It was only for uh, the ladies or children or the older adults, even adult men who are older, uh, would, uh, would ride but the adult men, the healthy men, would not ride a donkey. But they were used for carrying goods, of course. And then, think about horses for a moment. The horse. We don't think much about horses when it comes to the Bible, but uh, the, word, uh, the word horse is used uh, over a hundred times in the Bible, several times in the New Testament. Uh, but there's no great emphasis on it. But people rode horses in Jesus' day. And a horse can travel 25 to 35 miles in a day. Now... It might seem surprising because we might have thought a horse could, could travel a lot further than that, than a person could walk, but not all that much. Depends on the terrain and depends on, of course, uh, the weather and things like that. A horse walks at about four miles an hour, maybe five. And a horse, by the way, the idea of a horse running a long distance is, is a fallacy. A horse can only run about two miles, maybe three miles at full speed. Most of the time when people were traveling with a horse, riding a horse, a horse walked. So about four miles an hour, five miles an hour. That'd be, if you're walking 20, 
20, if you walk in the 20 miles, that would be about uh, uh, four uh, hours or five hours. And so you could uh, cut the trip down if you were on a horse and he was going uh, a, little, a little faster. And so horses, horses played a part in the New Testament. Now, I mention horses because many scholars believe the man we're going to meet today, the nobleman, who was extremely wealthy, this nobleman probably rode a horse. And uh, he probably a, a, approached Christ on a horse. One scholar said, this man certainly rode a horse. Now, it doesn't say that in the text. It just says he came and he went. But he could have come and went on a horse. And probably did, according to most scholarship. So there's a horse. By the way, the idea of a cowboy riding a horse all day, rounding up cows and doing all the cool things that cowboys do, the cowboy would only have ridden a horse about 30 miles in a day. Now when they had, I'm getting off the subject here, but when they, when they were sending messages and things like that, horses would take short distances. The rider with the message then would get off the horse and get a fresh horse and would ride that horse, so therefore messages could be sent quickly. Stagecoaches the same way. The reason they were called stagecoaches is because they were a coach and they moved from stage to stage. Uh, and they would move about 15 miles. Stagecoach would only go about 15 miles before it stopped at the next stage, get fresh horses and so forth. So at any rate, this man probably rode a horse. And since I want to talk about horses, I decided to talk about chariots too. Same thing with chariots. Uh, no, no, nothing any faster. Then we come to the camel. What an animal the camel is. The camel can walk 30 miles in a day carrying a thousand pounds of cargo. Can you imagine that? Now, if he has no cargo, if you're just riding a camel, you can ride him a hundred miles in one day. Wow. Puts the horse to shame, doesn't it? The camel. And then people selling, the boat, selling, uh, selling boats, larger, smaller, you know, some would go faster, but five to six, the average. And if you had good winds all day and you had people were sleeping in shifts and, and uh, taking care of the sails, when there were awake, you could go as much as 144 miles in a day. That would be uh, the uh, furthest. Now, I remind you that uh, in Jesus' day, the Holy Land was divided in basically three major sections, Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And uh, here's Jerusalem in the middle of Gal uh, Judea, and here's Nazareth in the middle of Galilee. And there's Cana. And then, uh, you remember, Jesus left to start on this journey from over at the uh, Jordan River, uh, close to Jericho. And they would have traveled uh, like this, and, uh, and then they stopped at Sychar. That's where he spent two days in Samaria with the Samaritan people. Now, that distance there is about 40 miles. So that's about a two-day journey. When Jesus left from baptizing, he, they walked two days, about 40 miles. It's another 40 or 50 miles up to, uh, up to uh, uh, Cana. And so they would have traveled up this way, either right through Nazareth or around Nazareth and into Cana. That would have been another two, maybe three days. So that journey is about four days altogether, five days possibly, more probably, like probably five days. And then if you take a close-up, there's Nazareth and Cana together. They're about four miles apart. And the man in our story today, he's going to come from Capernaum, 
which you see there on the Sea of Galilee, and makes that journey. That's about 20 miles, maybe 25 miles. We'll say 20 to 25 miles. And so we have then this uh, geographical information the Lord gives us. Now, I enjoy the, the thought of the geographical loca- uh, information because it helps us picture what was really going on there, you know. And, uh, but God thought it was important enough to inspire John to include it. So I think we ought to uh, take a look at it occasionally. Well, with that said, now let's talk about this man... Verse 46, the last of verse 46, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. The word nobleman literally means the king's son. Now this was not, this man would not have been the king's son literally, but the the, uh, idea of a king's son uh, was also used of anybody who was closely related to either by birth or by position, to the king. And this would have been the king in, uh, in Galilee. That would have been King Herod. And so this was a son of the king, or he was a, he was a person of great authority, someone who is closely related by his position to the king. And that would have made him extremely wealthy. By the way, Jews, Jews didn't even own horses. One thing was they were too expensive to buy and keep up, but also they didn't ride horses. Uh, It was just the custom of the Jews not to ride horses. But the Gentiles did, and especially the soldiers, especially the officers. You wouldn't find an officer like this man, a noble man, you wouldn't find him walking. You would find him riding a horse with some kind of guards probably with him, protecting him. And uh, so he would have been... The king's son or a nobleman could be translated, some translations translate it royal officer. That's a good translation as well. He was a royal officer, the king's son. And uh, he was from Capernaum. He would have been extremely wealthy and have a great uh, uh, prestige. And so he comes now. Now I'm going to read these next verses uh, as a whole, so we get the idea of the story together, and then we'll look at some more details. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him. He begged him. By the way, the verb tenses are in the Greek. They are in the tense that indicates continual action, the present tense. He continually begged him. And so he was continually... uh, begging him that he would come down, that is, come to uh, Capernaum and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. He'd probably been sick a long time, we would assume, and they'd tried everything possible known to man, every remedy money could buy, every doctor that, you know, money could uh, buy was there trying to help this boy, but he got worse and worse, and now he's at the very point of death, could die any minute. And uh, so the This man rides out to to meet Jesus in Cana. Verse 48, "Then, Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, will ye not believe? This is like a sigh of sadness on the Lord's part. People will come for a miracle, 
but they won't come to bow down and worship him for who he is. They saw him as a miracle worker and they might, they might get something out of it. But they don't come to worship him as the creator. And so Jesus gives this. Now he's speaking to everyone. The word ye there in verse 48 is plural. We would say down south, y'all. <laughs> Uh, all of the people listening to him, all of you Galileans, anybody around, and including the territory there, Galilee, y'all want to see signs and miracles. The word signs, there's the, the Greek word simeon, which means a miracle with a message. Uh, and, and the word wonder there means a miracle that makes you be in awe of what someone did. And of course, in this case, it would be Jesus. Not only is this a mild rebuke for this man... It seemed, almost seems cold, but it's not. It's a mild rebuke to this man to, to let him know that him believing in Jesus as a miracle worker is not the same as believing in him as the Messiah and the Son of God. And so he gives him this mild rebuke. Notice then, 49, the nobleman said unto him, Sir... That's a word of honor. Sometimes that Greek word is translated master or lord. He said, sir, come down ere before my child dies. He didn't want to talk about theology. He wanted to get back to the subject. I need help. I'm in a crisis. I'm desperate. I need help. He makes two mistakes in his request. And I'm not criticizing. I'm just pointing them out. You and I may make the exact same ones if we were in his case. He, but he made two mistakes in his request. One mistake was he thought Jesus had to be in Capernaum to heal his son. So he's begging him, come down with me. Come back to Capernaum. And the other mistake is he thought Jesus had to hurry and get there before his son died. Because once his son died, that would be permanent. <laughs> but Jesus, of course, is the author of life himself. And on three occasions that's recorded for us in the New Testament, he called people back from the dead after they'd already died. And so, he had those limitations when he comes to Jesus in his thinking. Jesus saith unto him, verse 50, Go thy way, thy son liveth. So he denies part of his request and answers part of it. He denies the going with him. He said, go on back. And then he says, your son liveth. I wonder how much of a pause there was between the two. Maybe it was just a few seconds, but maybe it seemed like a lifetime for that dad, that father. He was, he said, go thy way. And he's thinking, is he, is he running me off? Is he not going to hear me? There might have been a few seconds that sound, seemed like an eternity. And then, then Jesus says, thy son liveth. Remarkably, look at what the rest of it says. And the man believed the word of Jesus that he had spoken unto him. And he went his way. He didn't beg him anymore. He believed the word of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I kind of imagine in my mind that he had this look on his face of horror. What he was going, he's about to lose his son and he is in such a crisis and he is so worried and he is so fearful and he's so upset by the whole thing. But when Jesus says, 
your son liveth. He believed him. And I can kindly see the, that worry melting off his face. All that anxiety, all that fear melting away. Jesus said it. This miracle worker said it. And I've heard about the miracles he's done. I believe him. And he rested in that. And then, verse 40, 50... He went on his way, the last of the verse. He believed his word and went on his way. 51, and as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then required he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, we're going to talk about the seventh hour in a moment, but notice... This, this rich man assumed it would be a gradual healing because he asked what hour did he begin to amend. But the servant said the fever left him suddenly. It was completely gone in the seventh hour. Notice verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And he believed and his whole house. This time he doesn't just believe Jesus is a miracle worker. He doesn't just believe Jesus' promise. Now he believes on him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, his Redeemer, the Son of God. And so he believes in his house as well. Isn't that a beautiful story? Beautiful. That seventh hour, by the way, if you count Roman time, Romans count the hours like we do. You start at midnight, and then it start over again at, at uh, noon. So if you take Roman time, this would be 7 o'clock in the evening. And if you took Jewish time, Jewish time start their counting at, at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock in the evening, they count the night hours. And then 6 o'clock in the morning, they count the daylight hours. And so, in Jewish time, this would be 1 o'clock in the afternoon. John uses Roman time. So this would have been 7 o'clock in the afternoon. The video I'm going to show you in a few moments will use the term 1 o'clock, Jewish time. But uh, John uses Roman time. So 7 o'clock in the evening. Now think about this. He turned and left, and yet when he meets his servants... It was the next day because they said, he said, when did he, when did he begin to heal? And they said his fever left him yesterday at seven o'clock. So this was the next day. Now, if it was seven o'clock in the evening, then that rich man had to stay somewhere and spend the night. You could not travel at night. Not only was it dangerous with uh, robbers and thieves, but the terrain was dangerous. A horse could break a leg or a person uh, could lose their way and so forth. No one traveled at night. And so he stayed there overnight, and, and then in the morning he started his journey. Well, his servants, this was the same way. It was 7 o'clock when the boy was healed, and so they had to spend the night and wait till the next morning. So they both left the next morning. They meet about halfway, and uh, he gets this great news that his son is healed. And uh, no doubt he rejoices with great joy and believes on the Lord. Now, let's think about a few things together. 
This man was in a great crisis. He was desperate. He was going through a difficult time, a confusing time, and uh, an overwhelming time, a stressful time. He was hurting. Sounds like people in our day, doesn't it? Sounds like people in the middle of a worldwide crisis, pandemic, and a national crisis as well. Many people hurting today. I don't say this to scare anyone because I don't think we should be afraid. But this is a serious situation we are in. I read yesterday and this morning that in New York, someone is dying every hour from the coronavirus. You may have seen the article in New York about the family, large family, who went to a family gathering, not this past week, but the week before that. And it had a big picture. There looked like 20 or 30 people in that picture. Big, beautiful family. A week later, just a week later, four of them were dead and three of them were in intensive care. A mother and a son and two daughters were dead. Now those, adult, those were adult sons and daughters, but they were not elderly. This is a serious thing that we're in. You may have read as well about the woman who uh, beat breast cancer. She was 42. She had beaten breast cancer. But the coronavirus took her life. She had six children, and her husband had passed away as well. And uh, the, uh, the oldest son was in college. He had to leave college and come home to take care of his five siblings. This is a serious situation we are in. Do you know the Bible says 64 times, fear not. And another 28 times, it says, be you not afraid. Dr. Dennison said that uh, in the Bible, where God, in some kind of verbiage, in some kind of wording, he says to us, don't be afraid. Dr. Dennison says that takes place 365 times in the Bible. That's one time for each day, every day of the year. God's saying, don't be afraid. Don't fear. You see, the Lord is still on the throne, isn't He? The Lord is still in control. We don't know why this is happening. We don't have the capacity to understand that. God's ways are higher than our ways and His mind above our mind. And yet we still know Romans 8.28 is in the Bible. He loves us. For those of us who love Him, all things are working together for good to them that love Him. Now, will you be like that nobleman? Will you believe Jesus' word? Jesus believed His word. And He rested on them. They didn't beg Him anymore. He left and rested that night and rode home to find His son well. Will you believe Romans 8.28? Will you really rest on it and know that Jesus is still in control. He's the King of kings. He's the King of glory. He's the sovereign one. He is in control. We can come to Him when we're fearful and, and when we're uh, going through difficult times and a great crisis like this. We can come to Him the way this, uh, the way this nobleman did. And we can, we can find peace from Him. Now, listen. Jesus doesn't promise... Uh, everyone a miracle he still works miracles but he doesn't promise everyone a miracle but he does promise everyone peace 
He said, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace. Think about it, my peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's the antidote for trouble and fear, is the peace of Christ in our hearts. So you can come to him like this man did and say, Lord, I'm, this is urgent. I need peace. I need, I, need your, uh, I, I need your presence with me and your peace. Jesus is on the throne. Karen came across a, a little video this week that I want to show you. It only lasts 47 seconds. And it's of Billy Graham preaching when, uh, in 1973. So let's listen to Billy Graham here for 47 seconds. Habakkuk said, Lord, please tell me what you're doing. And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you, Habakkuk. Because if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't you think God's given up and God's abdicated and God's left the throne? He hasn't. He's still on the throne. And those of us that know him put our trust in him and him alone. I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. Amen. Isn't that glorious? And how true. When it all falls apart, he will still be there. One more thought about that, that gentle rebuke that Jesus gave the nobleman which worked what Jesus intended for it to work, he eventually truly believed. Jesus said, in a way that was disappointing to him, you want signs and wonders. People would flock to him to have a miracle. But think about who he was. He was the creator. He was God. What if you wanted to just come up and, and just follow him around and and say, I want to hear every word he speaks. I want to just be in his presence. And then every now and then, if you could get close enough, you might bow down and kiss his feet. That should have been the response from the world. But it wasn't. They wanted to see signs and wonders, miracles, and get their needs met. Christians today are not all that different. We could communicate with him this afternoon. We can commune with him and fellowship and read his word and, and enjoy his presence. But will we? If someone was having a tent meeting down the road and people were having miracles, I bet you they'd have to turn away people. That was the disappointment that he felt, I think. Look at the last verse now in verse 54. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Again, not the second miracle, but the second miracle he did coming into Galilee from Judea. The second miracle recorded by, uh, by John. Let's, uh, I've got, let me see, I'm, I'm a little behind here. Uh, let me move on. 
Here's a verse I came across reading the Psalms this week. I thought it was so sweet. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto you. Lift up my soul is like worship and praise, but it's a little beyond that. The idea is I am presenting my soul to you. It is I am. So it has the idea of full surrender. Here's my life, Lord. Here's who I am. Here's my soul. I lift it up to you and give myself to you. Let me experience and see your loving kindness instead of all the bad things that are going on around me. Now let me encourage you. I talked about the video tracks. That's uh, uh, Greg put that online so you can... Um, on our uh, Facebook so you can send out some of them also this week Karen and I listened to Will Graham and uh, a message for the world it's regarding the uh, situation in the world today it was live I think it was Friday night it was live you can still see it if you go to Billy Graham Association and uh, uh, Greg is going to put that on our Facebook as well and also he's going to put that 45 second video I just showed you. That'll be on our Facebook as well. So you can send it to people. You think it'll encourage someone? Send it. This message here by, by Will Graham is really evangelistic. I mean, it is. Uh, and then right there on the website, there's a, there's a recorded prayer to pray to receive Christ. And so it's a beautiful thing. Here's another way. You can invite people to join in on our services. I was really surprised and pleased at how many people watched last week. Let me give you a breakdown of that. A uh, number of views. Uh, on last Sunday morning, 10.30, the journey of faith. That's the study we're in right here. 417 by the end of the service had, uh, had viewed the service. By the end of the week, 928 had viewed the service. Now, a view, there could be several people watching when a, when a view is recorded. For instance, my two daughters that live here in North Carolina, my two daughters were watching. So that counted two views. They were from two different homes, two views. But with their husbands and kids, there was 11 of them. So two views equaled 11 people. So I took the number of people living in the home, the average number of people living in a home in Guilford County and Rockingham County, and averaged them together. And here's what we get. 417, that's the ones who viewed uh, by the time the service was over. And that's uh, 4.2, that's a, around 1,000 people. So last week when we worshipped, it was around 1,000 people worshipping with us. I hope this week it'll, it'll be that much or more. But by the end of the week, that 928 views, that's about 2,227 people. Isn't that wonderful? So you can, you can invite someone to tune it in. You can share it. You can send it uh, to someone, our services. Uh, by the way, we've always been streamlining for the last three years, but this, month, this year, January through uh, uh, last week, before last week, uh, that period of time, we averaged 285 views. And then uh, that's for the whole week. Now we're averaging, or last week, 928. So it's growing. It's increasing. And that's wonderful. People are, people are like, this, like this man. They are in a crisis. And uh, they're looking uh, to the Lord. 
and uh, need help. So you can, you can send them links to our services. And then uh, Harley, uh, on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, the history of the Bible, we had, by the end of the week, 540 uh, by the end of the week. So invite somebody to tune in and be a part. Now, I like to say that these are real people in real places and real things that happen. And so I'm showing you these clips from the Gospel of John and so we can remember that uh, these things really happen. So it, it may have looked something like this. Let's watch it. Three minutes. After spending two days there, Jesus left and went to Galilee, for he himself had said, prophets are not respected in their own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the people there welcomed him because they had gone to the Passover festival in Jerusalem and had seen everything that he had done during the festival. Then Jesus went back to Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. A government official was there whose son was sick in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to go to Capernaum and heal his son who was about to die. None of you will ever believe unless you see miracles and wonders. Sir, come with me. Before my child dies. Go. Your son will live. The man believed Jesus' words and went. way home, his servants met him with the news. Your boy is going to live. He asked them what time it was when his son got better. It was one o'clock yesterday afternoon when the fever left him. Then the father remembered that it was at that very hour when Jesus had told him. Your son will live. So he and all his family believed. This was the second miracle that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Think about it. Jesus didn't say, well, What's your son's name? What's your address? I want to be sure I get the right person because 
um, you know, it's, it's 20 miles away and so forth, so can you describe him? Does he have curly, dark hair, or brown eyes, blue eyes, and so forth? Jesus didn't have to ask any of those questions, did he? We see his great omnipotence in this. He knows what's going on 20 miles away or, or halfway around the world. He knows and sees. And he can meet every need. Don't you imagine, remember that the man had about half his journey, about another 10 miles going back home after he gets the news and knows his son's well. Then it says he believed. But can you imagine leading up to that believing, maybe he's pondering in his mind, how did it happened at the exact minute. How did he know where I lived? How did he know which boy it was? He must be who the people say he is. The Messiah. The Son of God. He's still on the throne. We can still trust him. Let's trust him. Each of us. Let's trust him. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. Wherever you are in your home, wherever you're listening from, you can pray this prayer right where you are and mean it from your heart. And Christ promised, if you'll open your heart, I will come in. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I have sinned. I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for me. And rose again from the dead. And right now. I call upon you. To come into my heart. Forgive my sin. And make me. A child of God. Give me a home in heaven. Thank you Lord Jesus. For coming into my life. My heart. Like you promised. Now if you meant that prayer. Claim his promise. He said, if you open the door, I will come into him. Believe his word. Believe his promise. To the rest of us, let's trust him for his peace. He promised peace. Let's trust him for it. Father, thank you for our time together today. May your word speak to hearts and bring forth fruit for your glory. Comfort your people. And comfort, I pray, the lost with your promises of love and redemption and forgiveness and the promise of your presence for them who receive you. Do a great work during this crisis of revealing yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.